Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. This is the Word of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know, not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified. Crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once and for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. The Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a look at what seems to us to be a paradox but which is just really a categorical misunderstanding of life and death, help us to understand these truths. Help me to preach this and help us to understand it and receive it. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Let's take a look at today's text. The very first question in chapter 6 is this. What shall we say then? Now this question is requiring us to go back and remember what we've been talking about. Paul, in his mind, is transitioning in the letter now from justification to sanctification. So these are categorical shifts in what it means to be saved. Justification, to be declared righteous, is judicial. Now sanctification, he's going to begin to talk about our changed nature. And so he begins with a question, what shall we say then? In light of everything that he's told us about justification, we were guilty, now we're declared not to be guilty. He takes us back to Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, you'll remember the last section is all about uh, dying with Adam, being raised with Christ, being declared guilty with Adam, being declared not guilty or righteous with Christ. This question, what shall we say then, really is particularly focused on verses 20 and 21. So let's take a look at chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I encourage you, if you didn't hear last week, go back and listen to it, because really today builds on that, but just in a nutshell, Adam's one sin, one transgression, condemned the whole race. So Jesus could have come in Genesis 4 to undo what Adam had done, but he didn't. He didn't come until much later in, in history, much later in Scripture. 
And in between the, the, the transgression of Adam and the salvation that is ours in Christ, God sent Moses to give 613 additional laws. And what we learned last week is God did not give us the law through Israel to restrain our sin. In fact, he knew that giving us those laws would give us more opportunity to transgress those laws, which would compound and multiply our sin. Why did God do that? God wanted to compound our guiltiness before him. He wanted to heap up our sin. Why would God want to do that? Because he wanted to show to us the power of his grace, the immeasurable vastness of his grace. Yes, God could have fixed the human race after one transgression, after Adam had sinned, but that was too small a thing. It would not have communicated the power of God's grace over sin. And so he allowed us to multiply our sin, and only after our sin was so incalculable did he send Jesus to triumph over all of it. Now that creates a theological problem. If that was God's motive for giving us the law, if that's why God was patient with the human race as we sinned generation after generation after generation, if God wanted more sin so that he could prove the depth and the vastness of his grace, shouldn't we just sin more so that God can show us his grace a little bit more? See, Paul in chapters 4 and 5 creates this theological problem. He's saying it doesn't matter how much you sin. Christ's crucifixion and resurrection is enough to justify you. There's no amount of sin that can undo God's saving work through Christ. That sounds good, but it sounds awful licentious. Go out there and just sin more. There's nothing that God can't forgive. Put him to the test. Sin, 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 sin. And grace will abound all the more. See, that's the problem with chapters 4 and 5, and that's why anyone who preaches the gospel accurately opens themselves up to this accusation. You're just saying that we can go and sin. If you've never been open to that accusation, you're not preaching the depth of God's grace enough. But you eventually have to close the door on that and say, that's not what I'm saying. That's what, what Paul is doing here. This is the question. Look at chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then in light of justification, which creates this problem? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What's Paul's answer? Verse 2. By no means. No. In fact, uh, some translations say, God forbid, may it never be. Uh, the Greek is as strongly worded as you can say it. Absolutely not. If you think that's where I'm going with justification, that is not where I am going. So the rest of today's preaching text, in fact, all of chapters 6 and 7, seek to answer this question. I'm going to give you a long question. I want to be very accurate in this question. If... The multiplication of sin gives God the greater opportunity to showcase the abounding vastness of His grace. Why shouldn't we sin more so as to give God's grace the opportunity to abound all the more? This is a longer way of saying what Paul said. Usually we try to shorten what Paul says. I'm just making it longer. But we all understand this point, right? If that's the gospel... Let's just go out and be professional sinners to give God the maximum opportunity to showcase his grace to the world. And here, the, 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 the text today is going to answer why that is not the case. But before we get to the text, I want to make three observations about this question. Because I, I believe we skate past this question too quickly. There is a real break between chapter 5 and chapter 6. And I don't know if we fully understand justification if we don't pause here for a moment to understand the theological problem that justification creates. So, three observations about this question. Why not sin more so that God's grace may abound more? 
Observation number one is that this is a logical question with regard to justification. This is a good question. If you are, are teaching the gospel to someone and you start with justification, if they ask you this question, it means they've been paying attention. This is the right question, and it's logical. And if salvation was only justification, then we might answer this question in the affirmative. This is why I think it's important, especially as Reformed evangelical Christians, because we love justification. We put all of our emphasis on justification. But justification alone leads to this theological problem. And if, we, if our definition of salvation is only justification, then we would have to answer, I don't really know why we shouldn't sin more so that God's grace may abound more. Based on justification, that seems to make sense. We might say, yes, we should sin more. We could sin more since we are justified and our abounding sin necessitates God's abounding grace to his glory. In fact, those who are young in their faith who have grasped justification will say this. And I remember as a teenager being on the phone with, with friends and just wrestling through this and say, does that mean I can do anything and, and God will always love me? He'll always forgive me? And we're just flirting with justification and trying to understand it and we would say yes that's exactly what it means there's no sin too big do you know sin more that grace may abound more it's a logical question observation number two it is impossible for paul to answer this question by appealing to justification which is why the book of romans transitions now into sanctification justification cannot as a doctrine answer why we ought not to sin more so that grace may abound more the legal or the judicial declaration of our righteousness cannot answer why we shouldn't sin more that grace may abound more and so we see here a limit to the doctrine of justification if that doctrine stands alone and so our gospel has to be more robust than justification. It has to start there and then go more broad than justification. Which brings us to observation number three. Paul answers this question not by appealing to justification, but by introducing and developing the doctrine of sanctification. So if your gospel does not include sanctification, you don't have a full gospel. What is sanctification? Sanctification has two parts. We often think of the second part, but not the first. So, so the first part of sanctification is crucial. And again, we're trying to create categories of theological thought for understanding the gospel. And if we don't have the first part of sanctification, it means we don't have a, a, a really solid grasp on the second part of sanctification, which means that we're going to be deficient in our understanding of our own salvation. So what's the first part of sanctification? The first part of sanctification is what theologians call definitive sanctification. Or some call it regeneration, though that's tricky because regeneration sort of preempts everything. Everything flows out of regeneration, even justification. But at the moment of regeneration, not only are you given a heart that is capable and you're therefore given the faith that is able to believe which justifies you, gives you a legal verdict of righteous instead of guilty but that regeneration also kills you and brings you back to life that's what we're going to talk about today at the moment of regeneration you are born again has anyone ever heard the born again yeah of course you have that that's what jesus said to nicodemus that that's what john loves to talk about that's what peter talks about but I don't know of a single time when Paul talks uh, about our salvation through the, the language of being born again. What's the language that Paul uses? Sanctification. So when you see Paul talking about sanctification, he's thinking like Jesus and, and uh, John and Peter about being born again. And so definitive sanctification starts with this past tense being reborn. It's this death to your old self and this coming to life of your new self. And in that sense, you can say that your sanctification is past and complete. Let me just give you 
2. Just listen, because I'm going to go very quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says this. And so, he's talking about all kinds of sin that will keep people out of heaven. And he says, and such were some of you, these sinners. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. I, I think this is really interesting because what we do in, in Reformed evangelicalism is we say justification is the beginning and then sanctification is this process by which we become more like Christ and then glorification is the end. It's not entirely wrong. It's just that justification and sanctification are simultaneous acts. They're not dependent upon one another. So at the moment that you were justified, you were also sanctified in that you died and came back to life. And so your, your justification and your sanctification run together. They start at the moment of regeneration and they run together on parallel tracks forever. So you're justified, you're declared righteous, that will go on forever without end. You are sanctified, that is you're born again. Uh, that being born again or that being sanctified in the past tense, definitive sanctification, is like the conception of a human being. One sperm, one egg, conception, that's a full human being. You have a full saint, a sanctified human saint. But what do we know about a one-celled human being? they got to grow up. So we are a new kind of creature, but we've got to grow up. So that the first part is dying and being conceived spiritually as a new creature. And then the second part of sanctification, which we are familiar with, is the growing up. Take a look, or just listen, sorry, the order here. And I, I love this. In verse 11, as I said, you were washed, you were sanctified. Paul puts sanctified first, and then he says, you were justified. I love that because it proves that you could do it in either direction because they're simultaneous acts. Sanctification does not flow out of justification. It happens at the same time as justification at the moment of your regeneration. So in justification, you don't need to grow up. You're righteous always. Sanctification, you're a one-celled Christian saint. Grow up. And so the second part of sanctification, which we're more familiar with, is called progressive sanctification. And this is uh, that idea that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, that is the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You are in your nature a saint, sanctified, definitively, past tense, but you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. As you work that out, you're growing, you're maturing, you're becoming more like Christ. So that's sanctification. So to review, and then we'll look at the text. If the multiplication of sin gives God the greater opportunity to showcase the abounding vastness of His grace, why shouldn't we sin more so as to give God's grace the opportunity to abound all the more? Paul cannot answer this with justification, but his answer to this question is because you have been sanctified. That's his answer. Sanctification, not justification. Today's preaching text then is divided into three parts. In verses 1 through 7, he's going to say that when you were sanctified, you died with Christ. And then in verses 8 through 10, he's going to say at the moment that you died with Christ, you were also raised with Christ. And then in verses 11 through 14, he's going to say, in light of that doctrine, live this way. So you, have, you see a little microcosm of the orthodoxy, orthopraxy in today's text. So we have to nail down verses 1 to 10. We have to understand it in order to live out verses 11 to 14. And it's my contention that we don't get sanctification, which is why we're struggling with sin the way that we are. Orthopraxy, or, that is right living, always flows out of orthodoxy, right belief. Now, I, I'm not seeing uh, orthopraxy, that is this power over sin, in our lives the way I think we ought to. 
which means I could thunder at you from the pulpit, be better people, or we could say the problem's not in the orthopraxy, we just haven't really grasped the doctrine yet. And so let's understand what the doctrine says and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us so that, wow, we'll see all of a sudden this victory over sin that we never experienced before is ours. Not because someone's telling you that you have to be a better person, but because the gospel's just doing its work. Let's take a look. First section, dying to sin. What does it mean that we have died to sin? Verses 2 through 7. Take a look at Romans 6, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is a rhetorical question. What answer is Paul expecting? Should we sin more? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? What, what answer is Paul expecting? He's saying you can't. It's impossible. Dead people do not sin. Dead people do not sin. Dead people can't do anything. If we're just using that, look at a dead person. Dead people do not sin. So if you have died to sin, how can you still live in it? It's a logical impossibility. Now, at this point, we close the Bible and say, well, that's not my experience, so I'm out of here. Or, or right now, you're checking out. You're like, okay, I, I just don't know where this is going. I still wrestle with sin. Therefore, this is not for me. Stick with me. Hear the whole doctrine. Allow it to seep deep into your soul. In what sense have we died to sin? Well, to answer that question, Paul asks another question, which is a little frustrating. We'll get to the answer. In what way, Paul, have we died to sin? Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I think most of us say, no, Paul, I didn't know that. I did not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. In fact, I have no idea what you're talking about. What does it mean that we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death? And, and this is tricky to understand because Paul uses the word baptism here in two different ways. And, and this is what he says. He says, you are baptized into Christ Jesus, and if that is true, if that baptism happened, that baptism signifies that you were also part of another baptism. And the second baptism is being baptized into his death. So the first use of baptism here, being baptized into Christ Jesus, is a reference to water baptism. Which is why we're believers Baptist Church. We believe that you're baptized once you're a believer because of the significance of that baptism. So in, in, in the first use of baptism, do you not know that when you were baptized into Christ Jesus, what Paul says, when you became a believer by repentance and faith in the gospel, you went under the water and you came out of the water. That was you being baptized into Christ Jesus. Do you not know that when you were baptized into Christ Jesus as a believer, you were declaring to the church and to the world that you have been baptized into the death of Christ? That's what baptism is signifying. That's what baptism is all about. It's a symbol of a greater baptism. So what Paul is saying is, do you not know that when you underwent water baptism as a believer, you are declaring that you have already undergone a spiritual baptism into the death of Christ? What is a spiritual baptism into the death of Christ? Those who have undergone water baptism bear witness that they're, by their water baptism that they've been spiritually baptized into the death of Christ. What does that mean? To answer that, take a look at verses 4 through 7. Verses 4 through 7 are broken into two parts. And it's just, they both say the same thing. So in verses 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, 
Six and seven say the same thing that four and five say. And you're going to see a pattern. Paul gives us a fact, then he gives us a reason for that fact, and then he tells us the implication of that fact. And he's going to do that twice, in four and five, and then six and seven. So fact, reason for that fact, implication of that fact. And that's going to answer the question, what does it mean to be baptized into the death of Christ. That's really important because if you're a believer and you are baptized in water, what you are declaring is that this is true of you. Fact. Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. See it there in verse 4? So you see there, those who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. What do you mean baptized into his death? Well, here's a fact. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. This is not about water baptism, this. Baptism into death is not a water baptism. This is a spiritual baptism. I think it's really helpful to understand what baptism is. Baptism is being dipped into something, to be immersed into something. So what does it mean to be baptized into the death of Christ? It's to be dipped into his death. It's to be immersed, immersed into his death. Here's what it means, and then we'll look at the purpose of it. It means in some mysterious way, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ were present with Jesus on the cross. When Jesus hung on the cross, you and I hung on the cross with him. It's amazing. Now, you may say, well, that's kind of hard to understand. The only way that you are even going to remotely conceive of what I've just told you is if the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. That you actually were present with Christ united to him when he hung on the cross. So this is not a mere metaphor. It's not fully literal. Obviously, we don't in our bodies go back in time and, and hang on the cross with him in that sense. But in some way, and you've got to remember, space and time is no problem for God. Neither is this corporate union of human beings, which is so hard for us in our post-enlightenment Western world. God is able to put people together, to unite them together. We see it with a husband and a wife, so they're no longer two, but they're united as one flesh. They still remain individual people, persons, but they're one flesh. We are united with Christ, not metaphorically, not fully literally in the sense that our bodies go back in time, but actually. We are with Christ. We are in Christ on the cross when he dies. So when did you die? There's two answers to this question, potentially three. Two answers. You died when Jesus was crucified because you died with him. Secondly, and this goes together with the first, you died when you were called to faith. So at what point in your life, if God could pinch a moment in time in your life, and he could pinch a moment in time in the life of Christ and bring these two together so that he sees them at one and the same time, and he doesn't care about space, he doesn't care about time, but he takes your life and Christ's life and he puts them together. It's the moment that you were born again and the moment that Jesus was on the cross, God puts those together. And at those two moments, when you were called to faith, when you were regenerated, and when Christ hung on the cross, you and Christ and me and Christ were united together at that one divinely orchestrated moment in eternity. So you're dead. Now this is really good news because most of us fear about our looming, coming deaths. But I'm telling you, you already died. When did you die? Well, two answers. You died when Christ died. You died when you came to faith. Did you know that you died when you came to faith? And from that moment forward, you're on the other side of death. Death can't touch you. There's, a, like I said, a bump in the road ahead. 
your body will stop working, you will not die. Because you've already died. What's the purpose of this? Why would God do that? Why would God take us and Jesus and put us together? Why would he baptize us into the death of Christ? Why would he unite us to Christ, not not metaphorically, not literally, but actually, spiritually? This is something that God is able to do because, because he is so much greater than us. Why would he do that? We see that there in In verse 4. So we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. That's the fact that I've just told you about. In order that. That's purpose. Why did God do this? He, he did it for a purpose. He didn't just do it for fun. He's trying to bring something about. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the purpose. So God unites us to Christ, but this is interesting. He doesn't unite us to Christ when Jesus was conceived in his mother. He doesn't unite us to Christ when Jesus is walking on the water. He doesn't unite us to Christ in anything that Jesus did before he was hanging on the cross. But when God unites us to Christ, he takes us and he unites us to Jesus in his death. And from that moment forward in the life of Jesus, we are forever united, bonded together with him as one. Remember, Jesus says, the Father is in me, I am in the, in the Father. And if you call on us, we will come, we will be in you, and you will be in us. We're united. We're one. We're one. You can't rip us apart. And it's at the moment of death, and from that point forward, we're united to him. So God says, I'm going to put you into his death so that your, his death is your death. Not metaphorically, but actually. And then everything that happens to Jesus after that happens to us. That's awesome. Everything that happens to Jesus happens to us. What Paul focuses in on here is just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we too might walk in newness of life. So so that at that moment, back here, right, when we're regenerated and, and faith issues forth in justification, but also issues forth in a definitive sanctification, death of the old self, birth of the new self, now we walk on the other side of the power of sin. Sin literally has no power over you. If you're sinning, it's not because sin is too strong, it's because you're choosing to sin. It's not because you don't have a choice. And so God says, just as Christ was raised from the dead, you are a new creature. You are a new creation. Walk in newness of life. No longer walk as your old self. So what's the implication of this? Look at verse 5. For, so here's the implication, indicated by the word for, if... We have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now what Paul is nuancing here between verses 4 and 5 is the newness of life starts at definitive sanctification and we work it out with fear and trembling as we are progressively sanctified. But sin from the moment of our, of our new birth has no power over us. But he nuances that and he says, but that's not the end of your resurrection. One day on this journey, your body will stop working. You'll transition to heaven. But don't fret. Just as Christ's body came back to life, you are so united to Christ that it's not just your soul that is united to Christ, but your body is united with Christ. And just as he came out of the grave as the first fruits of those who have died, so we too will be raised physically, super physically, in glory, bodily, back to life. That's the end of sanctification, which is glorification. He just hints at it here. That's the implication of all of this. But right now, we are, we are living in this progressive sanctification moment. Definitive sanctification is in our past. Now it is up to us to walk in newness of life. You've died. Sin's stranglehold over your life is over. 
Now, verses 6 and 7, Paul's going to say basically the same thing. So let's start with the fact. Fact. We know, verse 6, see it? Verse 6, here's the fact. We know that our old self was crucified with him. That's the same fact that we had up top. We were buried, therefore, uh, we were united with him in a death like his. Or, sorry, we were buried, therefore, with him in a baptism into death. What does that mean? Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. This is the same thing. Before you were a Christian, you were, you were a sinner. Sin had absolute power over you. You just got to choose what sin and how deep you wanted to take that sin. But our old self who was controlled by sin, has been actually crucified. That person has actually died. What's the purpose of this? Well, we get a double purpose here. Take a look at halfway through verse 6. In order that, that's the reason why, why did why did. God crucify us with Christ, our old self, so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That is, the body of sin, our old self, our sin nature was abolished and annihilated. You might say, well, hold on a minute. My sin nature hasn't been abolished and annihilated. And that's what chapter 6 and 7 is all about. So I can't answer all of that for you today. But let me just give you a little teaser for where we're going. Actually, yes. We're going to get to later in the chapter. You've been made obedient from the heart. In your heart, what is the heart? The center of your soul. The center of your person. Where your, your emotions are. Where your mind is located. We often think of our brain. But in our soul, uh, our mind is in our heart. It's, it's where our volition is control, or centered. So our will. Where we make choices. In our heart, there is no sin nature anymore. And I just think we don't realize that. These desires for sin linger, but they're more surface level than the core of who you are. Because at the core of who you are, you've been crucified, you died, your heart died, your your black and dead heart died, And in place of the heart of stone, God has given you a new heart, a heart of flesh that beats spiritual blood. And never, ever, ever, if you've been sanctified, do you desire sin there. So what Paul is trying to tell us in these chapters is live out of the core of who you are because at the center of who you are, you have died and you've become a new creature and you never, ever, ever desire sin there. Your sin nature has been abolished. Your sin nature has been annihilated in your heart. At the center of your soul, there is no sin. And over the next many weeks, I'm going to prove it to you biblically in Romans 6 and 7. But that's for future weeks. But that's why I just had to touch on that now because here the logic is clear. The body of sin was brought to nothing. And the Greek is the body of sin, the desire to sin was abolished. It was annihilated. It was taken out of existence. And as Christians, we say that doesn't match with my experience. Therefore, I'm going to say that the Bible's not true. I'm going to say that this doctrine that must mean something else. It doesn't. It means that your sin nature was killed. You died. On the cross. And just because you still flirt with sin doesn't mean that what I've just told you is not true. And if you do desire sin in your heart, you're not saved. If your deepest desire is not for righteousness, you're not a Christian. And here's another tragedy in the Western church. There's a lot of false conversions because we don't drill down to the depth of what the gospel is. And I don't want to just comfort you and say, oh, you're saved if you're not. So you have to wrestle with God on that. Do you or do you not desire sin in your innermost self? 
We all desire sin in our flesh in the more surface levels, but deep down, are you grieved by your own sin? If you're not grieved by your own sin and your full definition of the gospel is justification, I'm going to sin more that grace may abound more. I said the prayer, I'm fine. I'm not going to hell, so I'm going to live like anyone else. You're not saved. If you have not been united with Christ, if you have not been crucified with Christ, if you have not been sanctified and been born again, if your old self, the body of sin, the sin nature, has not been annihilated at your innermost being, you are not saved. So let's not say that this doctrine doesn't make sense just because we don't experience it. We either haven't understood it or we're not saved. But the doctrine stands... There's a second purpose here. So in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that why does God want to crucify our sin nature? It's so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see that? Next week we're going to get right into what all that means. If you've been sanctified, sin is not your master. It has no power. Implication, 4, verse 7. One who has died has been set free from sin. And we're all the way back at the beginning. Right? The question, how can we who die to sin still live in it? Answer, the one who has died has been set free from sin. We don't have to sin. We have been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, the power of sin is broken even though the presence of sin lingers. Which takes us to living in Christ. What does it mean that we live with Christ? Remember, we're united to Christ when we're called. We die and we're united in his, his crucifixion and his death, but we're also united with him in his resurrection. Take a look at verse 8. For if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We live with Him now. We will live with, our bodies will live with Him in our own resurrections from the dead. We've already gone over that. In verses 9 and 10, we can go over this fairly quick because we've kind of gone over most of the concepts already. Uh, in verses 9 and 10, Paul's just repeating himself again, saying what's true of Christ is now true of all of those who are united to Christ. That's what it means to be united with Christ. We are spiritually linked with Him forever and ever. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. Now, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So let's just think about this in the sense of Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. While he was on the cross, he carried all of us in him. If we're in Christ. When he died, he took all of us into the tomb with him. And when he was raised back to life, we were all raised to newness of life with him, and our sin nature stayed in the grave. So there's, there's sort of a splitting of ourselves at that point. Our sin nature dies with him and stays in the grave. Our new nature rises with him. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. So that's why Paul says that sometimes we're now seated in the heavenly places because where Christ is, we're united with him. We are, uh, we are spiritually united with him in the heavenly places. And when our body stops working, our souls will go to be where we, in some ways, already are. And then when Christ comes back to earth, our bodies will rise up and we will be united with our bodies again. We'll always be united with Christ. And then as Christ reigns age after age after age forever and ever and ever, we reign with him because what is his is ours. This is a profound gospel. This is a lot more than just feeling good about like getting out of hell. This is amazing stuff. It, it, it blows your mind. You cannot conceive of this without the help of the Holy Spirit. For us, what I want us to know is if you're in Christ, you're on the other side of death. Don't waste another moment fearing death. And 
what would our lives look like if we truly believed that we were already on the other side of death? If the worst that someone could do to you was to kill your body so that you transition to a new and greater way of being alive in the presence of Christ, what would you do for Christ? What are we so afraid of losing? You're already dead. But you've been made alive. Sin has no grip on you. Death can't touch you. That's why the Bible, if you read carefully in the New Testament, when, when, when the apostles speak about Christians dying, they say departing or sleeping. They never say dying. So what's so wrong about departing to be with Christ? Do we really believe, like Paul did, that to live is Christ and to die is gain? So there he says die. But he uses the word die in the sense of I'm not really dying because I'm gaining everything. Why don't we believe that? I'll tell you, until you believe that deeply, you'll never, ever, ever be able to live a victorious Christian life. You will never take risks for the gospel. You will be like every other unbelieving Canadian on your street because you actually don't believe anything that's powerful to change you and you might not even be saved. Which brings us to the imperatives in verses 11 to 14. And I'm going to read this for you. I'm not going to hit them very hard. Because what I want to focus in on is the doctrine. Because if the doctrine is taken care of, the practice will take care of itself. But this is what Paul says. If you really believe what has just been preached to you, this is what your life will look like. And if your life doesn't look like this, it means that you probably, at the deepest level, don't believe what has just been preached to you. Verse 11 to 14. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you believe you've died and come back to life? Do you believe in future resurrection? Are you on the other side of death? Verse 12. Let not sin therefore, therefore, because of what you believe, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, that's your body, including your brain. Your brain is a member of your body, and your mind is in your heart. Your mind controls your brain. Do not present your members, everything, tongue, hands, feet, brain, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. If the multiplication of sin gives God the greater opportunity to showcase the abounding vastness of his grace, why shouldn't we sin more so as to give God's grace the opportunity to abound all the more? Well, if salvation was only justification, we might conclude that we ought to sin more so that grace may abound more. There's a limit to the doctrine of justification. At the very least, this is a logically plausible conclusion. However, the doctrine of sanctification renders this impossible. How can we, who've died with Christ and declared that we have died with Christ by baptism into Christ, water, symbolizing the union that we have in Christ by baptism into his death, spiritual, how can we go on sinning? It's a logical impossibility. If you go on sinning as if you're not saved, then you're not saved. That's it. We've already died. Our sin nature has been crucified. We have been given a new nature. 
I've said some pretty direct things. Let me just, I don't want to soften it to give you license to sin, but what we're going to see in chapter 6 and 7 is the flesh lingers. Sin still is present in our flesh. What is the flesh? Nobody really knows. Paul never really bothered to tell us. But what we do know is it's not the heart. The flesh is the more surface level of who you are and the power to choose what you do with the members of your body doesn't come from the flesh but from the heart. So if your heart has been crucified and resurrected with Christ, live out of the center of who you are. That's, we got a couple of weeks to unpack this. Therefore, my pastoral exhortation to you is simple. Stop sinning. <laughs> Definitively, but progressively. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be transformed from one degree of glory to another. The only way it is possible to stop sinning is to actually believe the doctrine of sanctification that was preached to you this morning. If you're struggling with sin, may I recommend that you not try to stop sinning by trying to stop sinning. The only way you'll stop sinning is by getting on your knees before God and saying, God, help me to understand my sanctification. Doctrine matters. Doctrine changes who we are. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions for sin will have no dominion over you. That's a promise from the word of God, from Christ Jesus himself through the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that you have crucified us with Christ, that you have raised us to life, and though our bodies will stop working, you will even raise our bodies back to life. Help us to believe these things so that we might exhibit a greater holiness unto the Lord. We pray these things in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again and in whom we have been baptized. Amen.